Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to World Christianity, a special series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for those who would like to explore the expansive discourse on world Christianity as a global phenomenon and as an emerging field that examines Christianity's cross-cultural, diasporic, and transnational manifestations by paying close attention to the underrepresented and marginalized expressions of the Christian faith in the global South. Thank you for joining me today. I'm excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Byung-ho Choi from Princeton Theological Seminary. A Gospel for the Poor, Global Social Christianity and the Latin American Evangelical Left, written by David Kirkpatrick and published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2019, explores the development of Latin American social Christianity and its importance to the movement of global evangelicalism in the 20th century. Drawing on bilingual interviews, archives, and personal papers from three different continents, this monograph takes up a transnational perspective to tell the story of how a Cold War generation of a progressive Latin Americans, including influential figures such as Ecuadorian Rene Padilla and Peruvian Samuel Escobar, uh, developed, named, and exported their version of social Christianity to an evolving coalition of global evangelicals. Over the course of our conversation today, we will take a closer look at this groundbreaking work, how it sets out to make an important methodological and historical contribution to how we view global evangelicalism, and also how scholars and students of world Christianity stand to benefit from this book. To learn more about these issues and more, please stay tuned, and we hope you enjoy the book and our conversation as well. Today, we are privileged to talk with David Kirkpatrick, the author of A Gospel for the Poor, Global Social Christianity, and the Latin American Evangelical Left. David Kirkpatrick is the Associate Academic Unit Head and Assistant Professor of Religion at James Madison University. His work focuses on the multidimensional facets of transnational social Christianity and political unrest in and between Latin America and the United States. At James Madison University, David teaches courses on religious studies, civil rights movements and their histories, and labor and migration in the Americas. His publications speak to a number of issues regarding Christian missions, transnational social movements, and the politics of religious markets in the Americas. He has recently co-edited a collection of essays with Jason Bruner of Arizona State University titled Global Visions of Violence, Agency, and Persecution in World Christianity. This book brings together diverse scholars from multiple fields to reassess the relationship between global Christianity and violence around the world. David's work can be found in journals such as the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, Journal of World Christianity, and Journal of Ecclesiastical History as well as on public-facing forums such as the Washington Post and LA Review of Books. He is currently working on a new book entitled Blood and Borders, Violence and the Origins of the Global War on Christians, which is under contract with Oxford University Press. Before joining the Department of Philosophy and Religion at James Madison University, he was a T. Gannon postdoctoral associate in American Religious History at Florida State University and Teaching Fellow in World Christianity at the University of Edinburgh. So welcome, uh, Dr. Kirkpatrick, to New Books Network and World Christianity. And thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about your book. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here, and I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation together. Thank you. Um, as we begin, I wanted to briefly recognize my co-host, Irene Promodok, 
who unfortunately could not be present with us today due to last minute scheduling conflicts. But as you know, Dr. Kirkpatrick, she has greatly uh, contributed in preparing for our interview today. Absolutely. I'd love to say that as well, to thank Irene for her hard work behind the scenes and um, appreciate her work in this, putting this together. Thank you so much. Um, Now, I think it will be great if we can begin by getting to know our author a little more. So, uh, Dr. Kirkpatrick, could you say a few words about your background, like um, where you did your uh, doctoral studies, where you grew up, and how you became interested in the field of study? And please feel free to mention any mentors or interlocutors that you have that have influenced you along the way. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, I love beginning talking about, I grew up in Wisconsin in the Midwest, and uh, um, I, I did my PhD at the University of Edinburgh. And so I can't talk about any of my writing or any of any influence that I've had, I think is tied to my mentor, Brian Stanley, who who took me really from a um, someone who had no idea what he was doing to a to a budding historian and hopefully someone who can make a contribution in world Christianity. So had a great experience at the Center for the Study of World Christianity at the University of Edinburgh. Um, I had a close relationship with Andrew Walls and um, and if you know the name Naomi Haynes, who's in social anthropology there. Um, in my master's work at Trinity in Chicago, I had a, had a great mentor named Doug Sweeney, who works on Jonathan Edwards and. He was one who took, I mean, he, he, um, I can remember our conversations in his office when I was on sabbatical where I was attending a Latino church and doing a lot of uh, social work in, in Spanish speaking contexts and yet studying what many would consider kind of traditional church history. And I remember Doug kind of having this like shake me up moment where he said, why are you not focusing more in your research on where your heart is, you know, in your personal life and many of these research skills that you have. And so Doug and uh, a mentor named Peter Cha were some of the first to introduce me to the work of Rene Padilla, Samuel mm-hmm. Escobar, and others in my master's work. And so that really began uh, a lifelong research journey that intersected with a personal journey that I've had with uh, Latin American, Latino culture in the U.S. And I, I grew up, my parents were very intentional with bringing diverse uh, neighbors and friends to our dinner table and especially those who could teach us Spanish as we were little kids. So I grew up <laughs> learning Spanish around the kitchen table, even right. though my parents didn't know Spanish. Uh, and so that's really where, from a young age, a connection and love and learning from Latin American Latino culture came from. And in many ways, this book is a product of a, of a lifelong journey learning alongside mm. uh, the Latin American church. Mm. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing about your life and, and this journey that you've took. And it's always a, a pleasure to hear of the background stories that have led up uh, to your current uh, interest in your field and your research and how influential your life, uh, your journey has become in pursuing such research as well. So thank you for sharing about that. Um, now I would like to kind of uh, ask if you could tell us more about how you came to write this important work. In a little more detail, that is, uh, Gospel for the Poor, Global Social Christianity, and the Latin American Evangelical Left. How did this idea develop and what led you to asking some of the important questions? Um, And if I could kind of squeeze in another question, you said in your book that you utilize bilingual interviews, unstudied personal papers, and archival documents. And I'm curious to know what your research process and writing experience uh, was like using uh, these kind of sources. I'm sure it's it, it probably had led you to many routes and many journeys as well, but we would love to hear more about that. Yeah, thank you. I love that question because the journey of writing the book, you know, over the course of a decade was was an incredible experience of meeting so many great people and um, and learning from so many people all around the world. So I, so it took me to you know, Rene Padilla's garage in Buenos Aires, where I got to spend over a week of interviewing him and in his personal papers, to Valencia, Spain, uh, you know, papers in San Jose, Costa Rica, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury's Library in London, to study John Stott's papers and kind of all throughout the US as well. And this was intentional because when I was looking at this story, and as I began to get into wanting to kind of illuminate the contribution that Latin American evangelicals had to the story of of Cold War social Christianity, mm-hmm. I knew that I needed an alternative set of of data. I knew that I needed an alternative archival set, and 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 to allow the the oral oral interviews and the main characters to tell the story 
in their own language in some, mm-hmm. in a in a way that they were they were comfortable with. So intentionally, I knew that I needed to get outside of the U.S. and to and even outside of the U.K. and to center archival documents that would not necessarily have made it at that point into a you know a standard archive. Right, that's mm-hmm. part of our journey as historians. For me, as a historian. Um, to not just depend on that which is easily accessible, and so and th- and that was part of what was fun was to was to um, you know and and a lot more work. Anytime you're translating from another language, as you know, it's a lot yes. more work. But to allow people like Samuel Escobar and Padilla, even though they speak English, uh-huh. to allow them to to tell these stories in their own language and to make me as the researcher be one who might stumble with words or or you know need to um, to do the hard work of translation. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was a long journey as a, um, as I began, it was, it was so neat to see the hospitality of many people who allowed, you know, Rene Padilla, who, mm. who hosted me and, um, allowed me to stay in his drug rehabilitation center. So I, I met some very interesting people who are at the heart of Rene Padilla's ministry and, mm. and spent some good time with Samuel Escobar as well in Valencia. So, um, you know, as I think about, as I think about the story and I think about the, the research behind it, I think that's really the main contribution here is to is to dig up, you know, John Stott's travel diaries of camping with Rene Padilla in the Patagonia mm-hmm. Mountains, or or these conflicts that were taking place over institutions and organizations and personal letters. Mm-hmm. You know, another example I'll give if you know the the large parachurch ministry, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Mm-hmm. Stacy Woods was the founder, and he burned all of his papers before he died, and yet. As I went to Samuel Escobar's apartment, he had two huge binders of letters, many of which were between him and Stacy Woods, right? And so, even in the archives of Latin Americans, I found many of the main, you know, uh, English-speaking characters, their papers that wouldn't have been accessible in mm-hmm. in standard archives. So, what an exciting! It was an exciting journey. Uh, you know, I learned so much, and then I was excited to be able to piece together the story and to tell it in a way that I hope was accessible to many others. Wow. I mean, just listening to your brief stories, background stories. I mean, it sounds very exciting. The journey that must have taken you, um, and and the more intimate um, times that you spent with these important figures that you love to share in your book as well. But um, and once again, thank you for your insta insights. Uh, this really helps put us as readers, as listeners, to put into perspective the amount of research and the relationships and the investigation that goes into making such a great book. So thank you once again. Um, taking a closer look at the book itself now, um, it's, it is comprised of seven chapters and it is also richly illustrated, um, which includes, again, pictures of the various figures uh, that you've encountered uh, throughout your research process and your time there. Um, and I'm sure we will more talk about more in detail of these figures of Samuel Escobar and, and Rene Padilla. But before we dive deeper into the book, I wanted to ask if you could briefly lay some of the groundwork and help us locate the context of this time. As you have provided in your book, I think it is important for our listeners to also understand the history and the kind of social context of Latin America and especially Protestantism in Latin America leading up to the 1960s and 1970s, uh, which kind of evolves around, uh, your book evolves around. And it will be helpful if you could untangle some of the complexities as well um, for our listeners as well. So please feel free to share with us about um, some of the keywords that you utilize, uh, such, such as social Christianity um, and integral mission. I think if you could untangle these words, it will help uh, our listeners and readers uh, to put into perspective where your journey begins in this book. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so... I think for especially for the English speaking reader, you know, who might be coming from the UK or from the US, mm-hmm. when we think about Christianity, uh, Protestantism is often centered, right? And so, and, and even in the field of world Christianity, there seems to be a more of a kind of Protestant leaning uh, lens to a lot of the stories. Not notwithstanding people like Lama and Sana and others who can you can help center Catholicism. And so, the story of Latin American Christianity, we do need a, a unique lens, in particular. Mm-hmm not just because of Protestantism being a religious minority community, but because of how long Christianity has been in the region in contrast to, um, or, or, or I should say in a dominant position, obviously mm-hmm. Christianity has been in, in uh, Africa and Asia for a long, long time, but in terms of its, its, its dominant and culture shaping position. And yet for Protestants, 
for most of their history, they've been a religious minority community. And, you know, from the, the mid 19th century, you know, all the mm-hmm. way through even into the 1950s, many Protestants in many Latin American countries experience marginalization, oppression, violence. Mm-hmm. And so um, this relationship between the U.S. where Protestantism is, is often centered and is in a privileged position is the kind of power wielding force. Um, Latin American Protestants had an opposite experience, not mm-hmm. just as, um, as Christians, but also in terms of when we get to the Cold War, what's happening in terms of politics. So just to begin, as we think about Protestants mm-hmm. in Latin America, we're thinking about a religious minority community who until after the Second World War really mm-hmm. don't have much of a demographic footprint and aren't really seeing a whole lot of growth that is going to ping on the radar of those who are maybe observing you know, from the global north. Right. Um, and so the big moment in this story is going to be 1959 when the Cuban revolution breaks out and forces mm-hmm. loyal to Fidel Castro overthrow Fulgencio Bautista. This mm-hmm. is going to be for an entire generation of Christians across a wide denominational spectrum, Pope Francis, Gustavo Gutierrez, right? Uh, the mm-hmm. main kind of founding father of liberation theology, as well as evangelicals like Samuel Escobar, Rene Padilla. This mm-hmm. is going to be a moment for many where it's going to shift a continent and it's going to shape the, the experience, the everyday experience of, of individuals there. It's a moment when many who are seeing the U.S. influence in the region, mm-hmm. many Americans have forgotten about you know, an active, um, even military intervention that the U.S. had in shaping politics in Latin America, um, you know, and on the messy end, you know, taking out leaders that they didn't like in terms mm-hmm. of CIA intervention, right? So this is a very real history. But Cuba gives an example where American influence is not inevitable and mm-hmm. that American influence can be eschewed, can be rejected, can be kicked out, right? A place like Cuba where the U.S. had so much interest and yet they could be so clearly defeated in terms of Fidel Castro's rise, but later on, even the Bay of Pigs invasion, which is such an embarrassment for the Kennedy administration, mm-hmm. and eventually the Cuban Missile Crisis, where the U.S. is really on its back foot, and it's a, it's a very scary moment. So this is the, the defining moment of a decade, 1959 forward into the late 1960s. And um, this is also going to precipitate major moments in world Christianity Uh, I think it's something like 40 days after the Cuban revolution, the Catholic church calls the second Vatican council, John the 23rd does. Mm. And so here's this, also this moment where the Catholic church calls for opening the windows of the church and letting a fresh breeze through an entire generation of theologians are going to see the second Vatican council as an opportunity to make theology much more local. Mm. And so they're going to take the Catholic church up on their, on their call for a pilgrim church and a local church. And this is the, the encouragement and the inspiration that theologians like Gustavo Gutierrez, Jose Miguel Bonino, and others need to begin thinking about social Christianity, and in their case, in liberation theology. So when I say social Christianity, um, it's a broad and eclectic you know, category that would be thinking about the, the wider dimensions of sin and the wider dimensions of salvation. And so, um, and so thinking about, you know, that sin infects not only individuals, but also systems and structures and that salvation is not only personal, but also societal. And so for individuals that center in the book, like Padilla and Escobar, justice then is not, uh, optional, but essential to the, the Christian project. And so for them, they're, they're going to, to begin to forge a, their own path as Latin American evangelicals, where they reject liberation theology as a method, but they see its prophetic inspiration in censoring the poor. They reject conservative evangelical loyalties to the religious right, to kind of only soul saving. And they're going to posit what they call mission integral, where uh, it's a synthesis of the evangelical offer of salvation Mm-hmm. with the pursuit of justice. And those two things, Padilla is going to call wings of a bird or wings of a plane that you can't fly without both justice and this personal conversion. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be an organizing principle for, for Latin American theologians, for an entire generation of progressive Latin American evangelicals to address 
this social context. Mm-hmm. Wow, thank you. Thank you for providing that context. And, and it'll surely help us better understand what the situation was like during this time and in progressing in our conversation today. Um, and thank you for laying that groundwork. But a kind of a quick follow-up question to that to your answer is, um, in a way, who do you refer to when you talk about this emerging coalition of Latin American evangelical left? I think um, you use this in your title as well, but I think uh, you and you also provide a brief definition or kind of a category in, in your book in the beginning chapter. But would you like to just briefly mention um, who you have in mind when you refer to Latin American evangelical left? Yeah, and some of that some of that linguistic designation finds mm-hmm. its its inspiration in the work of David Swartz, who wrote uh, Moral Minority, and who's a good friend of mine. Um, and this, you know, of course, this coalition that's not just in Latin America, but also in the US. So I explore in the book connections between the American evangelical left, which is, um, you know, which at its time in the 70s, especially when, when Jimmy Carter gets elected, Mm-hmm. Uh, American evangelicals are not fully aligned with the, the Republican Party in a way that they that many are today. And there's this moment in American politics when many think that uh, you know American evangelicals could go to Democratic Party rather than the Republican Party. So this is what's happening in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Latin America, this generation is really again. I mentioned that that they're rejecting Marxist inflected theologies of liberation as a method, and they're also rejecting the conservative political loyalties of conservative evangelicals. They're carving this middle path. And and I hope I make, you know, and I know that you know this too, that that this designation of a Latin American evangelical left, which is conservative theologically, but progressive politically, mm-hmm. is not to mask the diversity of these individuals. And so I think, again, I hope what one of the one contributions of the book is to show, and I think we'll, we'll hopefully get into this later, um, Orlando Costas is not Samuel Escobar, is not Rene Padilla, and that there's their own social locations, which is mm-hmm. interesting that they have such unique stories. Orlando Costas as a Puerto Rican, mm-hmm. Samuel Escobar as a Peruvian who's educated thoroughly in Latin America, and then Padilla who has this interesting evangelical journey to the US and to the UK that the Latin American evangelical left shouldn't mask this, this, um, this diversity that they have and a robust conversation about you know, how much should we embrace Marxism? How much will we reject mm-hmm. capitalism? How much should we, you know, X, Y, or Z, where they're going to, that's part of their journey is to, to create space that they can ask questions that perhaps would have been off limits in, in other organizations that they've been part of. Right. Thank you for clarifying that. And I think it'll be very helpful. And I love how you use the word diverse, even within the um, evangelical left. Um, I think that's something that to keep in mind as we progress in our conversations as well for our listeners. Now, for the first chapter of your book, um, you set out the stage by examining this push for uh, social consideration in evangelical theory and practice theology and practice, and we cannot deny the importance of the Lausanne Conference in 1974, I think, which serves as a kind of the narrative uh, center uh, of your book as well. So, uh, Dr. Kirkpatrick, do you mind sharing about the significance of this conference in 1974 and the groundbreaking speeches uh, made by Rene Padilla, Samuel Escobar, and Orlando Costas? In contrast, um, and I believe that Billy Graham was present in this uh, conference as well. Uh, so in contrast to Billy Graham's speech, um, how was their, their um, talks, their speeches, um, you know, groundbreaking and moving uh, to, towards the listeners during this time? Yeah, we can't talk about the influence of, of evangelicals from the global South, Africa, Asia, Latin America, right, in the post-war period without talking about the Lausanne Congress. Mm-hmm. One historian you know, Mark Noel mentions two turning points for global Christianity in the second half of the 20th century, the, the Second Vatican Council and the mm. Lausanne Congress. Yeah. At the time, Time Magazine calls it possibly the widest ranging gatherings of Christ, gathering of Christians ever held. Mm. And one of the reasons that it's that it has this, you know, um, apocal status is because of its diversity in terms of not just representation in delegates, but also in in terms of leadership. Mm-hmm. That's not to mask that Americans and British still have kind of the the main weight of organization and funding that goes into this. But this is a moment mm-hmm. when many evangelicals begin to realize that more there are more Christians living in Africa, Asia, Latin America, that there are more evangelicals, and that their context 
is not the main context of Christian Christians around the world, that more Christians are living in poverty in context of injustice. Mm-hmm. And when people like Rene Padilla ascend the stage and bring their context of, of poverty, oppression, and justice, mm-hmm. and they implicate American missionaries in not addressing that context faithfully, that's shocking for many people. Many people are, you know, disagree with with Padilla and others. He he says, um, you know, that that Americans have exported American culture Christianity, right? And that it can be like mm-hmm. uh, that um, conversion comes to an individual like a Robinson Crusoe on an island by themselves, mm-hmm. and not addressing the social context around them. Mm-hmm. And he purposefully addresses the U.S., not just other countries not just because of its relationship in terms of its history that there you know most missionaries in the region are american but also because of this cold war context lazan is is um incredible as well because it holds this coalition together mm-hmm. john stott is key in mediating between a younger more diverse generation of evangelicals and some of the kind of power brokers like billy graham mm-hmm. where there's moments where it looks like this tapestry is going to fray. And yet somehow they're able to hold it together and put together the Lausanne covenant, put together a statement on radical discipleship. And, you know, Stott is one who diffuses a lot of these tensions because he has close relationships and friendships with many uh, Christians, not just in Latin America, but all across the world. Mm. And so Lausanne is a moment that, um, that, that even like people like Billy Graham, Billy Graham admits, you know, these things needed to be said. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the histories prior to this don't give Graham enough credit that he, for all his shortcomings, he was intentional about allowing dissenting voices who would disagree mm-hmm. with him. He was intentional with, with, a, with having more diverse and younger voices. He was intentional with, um, with wanting to create a context where these disagreements could come together. Now he was, he was, um, honest about wanting evangelism to be the one thing that everyone did and that everyone made as a priority and that wasn't lost in this. He wanted it to be a a gathering where everyone centered evangelism. Mm -hmm. And of course, people like Padilla and others say you can't have evangelism without social action. And that became kind of the center of Lausanne. But um, it was a learning moment. It was a moment Mm -hmm. of a lot of disagreement. And Mm -hmm. the questions that Lausanne raised would not be answered even over the coming decades. Um, we'll see the Lausanne movement adapt and change and disagree and negotiate over the next decade. But eventually we see these global evangelical organizations and NGOs center the work and the voices and the experience of those who made Lausanne uh, the moment that it was. Thank you for that answer. Um, and kind of in continuation of the previous question, I think it's just as important to understand and locate who these figures that we've been mentioning about are, uh, Rene Padilla, Samuel Escobar, and Orlando Costas, um, especially as we see them as prominent leaders of the Latin American evangelical left. Um, in chapter two, you go to some depth uh, in the beginning to introduce them, but I was wondering if you would like to briefly introduce them yourselves uh, today and add anything that we as readers and listeners should know about in, in understanding the bigger picture. Yeah, I appreciate that. And um, I was able to meet two of the three, uh, Samuel Escobar, Rene Padilla, and Orlando Costa sadly passed away in the 80s. Um, due to cancer. Mm-hmm. But um, as I mentioned before, what I find so interesting that they were, some people call them the triumvirate. I mean, I think that's overstating perhaps mm-hmm. that there were, I mean, there were others like Pedro Arana, who is Peruvian and others. Uh, but Orlando Costas was an interesting contributor here because he was Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. And so his experience as a child being, uh, you know, needing to leave the island for Connecticut in the U.S. and and his family not wanting to leave, but needing to leave because of economic reasons. And he talks about having, you know, um, experience experiencing racism, experiencing uh, discrimination in the U.S. and and yet he has this really interesting kind of quintessential. American evangelical experience where he's converted to a Billy Graham crusade, mm-hmm. and he goes to Bob Jones, and he goes to. Um, uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which at the time, you know, is a little bit more progressive, but certainly in the, in the conservative theological camp. And so he's thoroughly evangelical. He becomes a, 
a leader in Milwaukee as a pastor during the civil rights movement. He learns a lot from African-Americans there in terms of organization and becomes a missionary to Latin America with the Latin America mission. Hmm. I tell a little bit in the book about he helps to lead Latin Americans to take control of the flagship Latin American evangelical seminary, Seminario Biblico Latino Americano. Hmm. And, you know, he was a very, a very, um, one person that I interviewed called him a, an elephant in a china shop. He was very loud, very, very. Um, you knew his opinions. He would give long speeches, um, and he was not afraid to uh, take on American missionaries and to say he'd say provocative things like "You're treating us like uh, like a mom would treat their child who isn't allowed to leave the house" or, or things like that. And so he played a major role in helping Latin Americans take control of, of theological independence. He also crossed a lot of theological boundaries that leaders like Padilla and Escobar wouldn't have. He had a closer relationship with the World Council of Churches, closer relationship with mainline Protestantism, and because of that, had some very diverse and wide theological friendships. Hmm. Samuel Escobar, a Peruvian theologian, and and like Padilla, was a longtime staff member with the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, which is the global representative body of InterVarsity. Um, hmm. Christian fellowship. So as a staff member for a long, long time. And eventually he became the, the president of InterVarsity Canada mm-hmm. and then becomes a, a professor in the U.S. Um, I should have mentioned that that uh, Costas becomes a professor at Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary or Palmer Theological Seminary. And to my knowledge, Costas becomes the first endowed Hispanic American endowed chair mm-hmm. uh, at an evangelical institution. Escobar succeeds him there at Eastern Baptist, which becomes Palmer Seminary. Mm-hmm. And Escobar is fully educated uh, his entire life in Latin America. He does uh, all of his studies in Peru and then in, and, and I should say in the Spanish-speaking world because he also studies in Spain. Padilla is an Ecuadorian-American, and he grows up like, like Escobar with a close relationship with American missionaries. But as a young person, he leaves for Wheaton College in, in the Illinois suburbs and um, he has a very interesting experience there doing his undergrad and his master's where he encounters um, what he sees as necessary theological education, but lacking in its contextual application to Latin America. He eventually does his PhD with F.F. Bruce, who at the time was the leading conservative evangelical biblical scholar of the era, um, according to Brian Stanley, who I agree with on almost everything. And uh, so, and then eventually Padilla joins the staff of International Fellowship of Evangelical Students as well. Has a long, long um, history uh, of campus ministry at these university campuses. So these biographies, I'll say, help us understand why evangelicals are able to make a contribution to social Christianity in the same era as, as liberation theology, because they're living and working among college students all across Latin America. Escobar and Padilla become traveling secretaries with the IFES. And so they're all over Venezuela and all, you know, all over in neighboring countries. Um, Argentina becomes a center as well. In this unrest, they are there and they are um, you know, listening to college students who are saying, isn't Marxism the best answer to what it means to be a faithful Christian? Hmm. And so they're looking at this and saying, I didn't learn about this at Wheaton College. I didn't learn about this right in, in my own right. study. So what? Do, how do we answer this? And they quickly realize we need to develop our own contextual theologies. And this becomes both the promise, but also the problem in that a lot of Americans in particular didn't want to see this robust mm-hmm. conversation with Marxism, with social Christianity that for them be, uh, was, was a little bit dangerous. And, and they were fearful that this was going to take them down a path that other, you know, of a leftward theological drift, we might say. Thank you for that answer. And I'm, I, I like how you ended this uh, answer, how, you know, there was this need for a theological development amongst them. And this kind of kind of uh, segues into our next question is that what I truly found helpful about chapters two and three it was how you delineate the political atmosphere of Latin America. Um, which also influenced the evangelical social theology and integral mission um, in which you briefly mentioned uh, in the beginning. And I was wondering if you can say a little more on the rise of this Latin American evangelical social theology, um, its connection to the Catholic liberation theology, uh, which was very um, uprising and vibrant uh, during this time, and also how the Cold War influenced this uh, religious movement as well. 
Absolutely. I think when people are aware of social Christianity in Latin America, they're aware of liberation theology. Yeah. And for many people, anything that looks or smells or, or moves like liber like a, you know social Christianity, it is liberation theology. Yeah. And so I think one of the contributions I hope of the book is to clarify that evangelicals are not primarily responding to liberation theology, but they're yeah. primarily responding to a shared set of social and political stimuli that you know rural urban migration these cities that are bursting at the seams um you know a generation impacted by the cold war and political unrest uh unjust military regimes that that spread across the region these shared realities with with catholics where catholics protestants are all asking what does it mean to be a faithful christian in this context and so protestant evangelicals like padilla escobar costas are actually reading more again, of the social context, but more mainline Protestants than they are Catholics in terms of what, at least what I can tell in terms of interviews, as well as what they're citing in their articles at the time. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of what's happening at, at the time in the World Council of Churches, we have um, Iglesia Sociedad in America Latina, which is called ISOL, and they're developing their own form of, of what they call theology of revolution or theology of liberation. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of crossover between mainline Protestants and and Catholics at this time as well, because of people like Jose Miquez Bonino, who's the only Latin American Protestant observer at the Second Vatican Council. Mm. And he joins Padilla and Escobar in their project of exploring social Christianity. So all that to say, you know, this is a shared context and this is a this is the same generation. And so, you know, it's been interesting to see, I think, how overlooked some of this contribution has been because we know so well the Catholic story. And, and in, in some ways, we know the mainline Protestant story. Many people wouldn't expect evangelicals, especially conservative evangelicals, to develop their own social Christianity. Many people would see that as like a contradiction of terms. Mm. And this was part of the issue for, for them at the time, because they needed to create this space in order to, to develop their own right connect contextual theologies. Mm -hmm. um, and so, the Cold War, the proximity to the United States, and this, um, you know, I'll, I'll simply add, when the Cuban Revolution breaks out, people like Che Guevara and Fidel Castro, they promise to export revolution all throughout Latin America. But instead of Marxist, communist governments, most Latin American countries receive military regimes. And so, again, this idea of theology from the margins and theology from a context of oppression and violence is the everyday reality for, for every Latin American country besides Costa Rica and briefly Mexico is going to receive a military regime. And so that's not just an abstract idea for them, but a lived reality. Thank you for that answer. And I was wondering, uh, as we segue into the latter half of the uh, latter half of your book, now going to chapter four, we would really appreciate to listen more about the role of the theological controversies around biblical inerrancy and authority uh, that had on Latin American political ferment in the 1970s, um, and particularly in terms of the emerging ideas of nationalism and regional identity within uh, Latin America at that time. So how important was theological controversy and evangelical disagreement to the formation of a new political landscape in post Cold War War Latin America. I appreciate that question, and that to me shows me that you, you know, and I, I always appreciate when you've really engaged with the book, and that's really getting into you know some of the fun I think stories yeah. of disagreement and of negotiation uh, among this generation, and especially among Americans and British missionaries in the in the region. So biblical inerrancy, this idea that the Bible cannot err, and that it doesn't err in you know, all that it affirms to be true. Uh, I think a misunderstanding of biblical inerrancy would be that it's not giving, you know, sensitivity to genre or to, you know, to, to the different types of literature. But, you know, if we look at it at its best, this idea that if the Bible wants it to be true or, or affirms it to be true, it can't lead you astray. Um, Samuel Escobar and Padilla are not, and Orlando Costas, they're going to agree with biblical inerrancy. They're going to have no problem with it. Yeah. What they're going to disagree with is, Again, Americans seeking to, so I'll back up a little bit. In these mm -hmm. gatherings and these kind of mini conferences, that, that's what's called the Latin American Theological Fraternity. Mm -hmm. 
Latin American Theological Fraternity becomes the leading evangelical think tank in the region, especially for issues of social Christianity. A lot of uh, Americans are going to try to um, are going to try to shape the statements and the theological production in these gatherings in a way that kind of reflects the controversies that are happening in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So Escobar and Pudi are going to say, and this is their words, they're going to say. Most Latin Americans have no problem with biblical inerrancy, have no problem yeah. with biblical authority. Most Latin Americans hold the Bible in an incredibly high regard. So why are we centering this in a you know theological statement? That's a that's a US issue. Mm-hmm. Let's write our own statements. Let's write our own context. Our issues are, you know, as we mentioned, our issues are the the political, our issues are the social. The um and so what's gonna happen is as they begin to push some of these boundaries and push back. Um, when this is written up in things like Christianity Today and written up in, in you know in other like uh, prayer letters of missionaries, Escobar and Padilla are staff members with organizations that fundraise very heavily in the United States, and so fundraisers are not going to like to see at a time when there's a lot of fear over communism and Marxist influence that mm-hmm. there's a kind of closer move toward social uh, addressing social context in a way that for them looks a lot like. You know questions that Marxists and communists are asking, mm. and so Fadia especially is going to get caught up in a controversy with with InterVarsity where they're going to see a drop in donations because people are writing about you know Latin American staff members don't agree with biblical inerrancy, and he's mm. going to say I agree with biblical inerrancy. I have no problem with it. What I'm saying is why are we writing about this right again in the context yeah. that it seems just like a foreign concern? Mm. And Stacy Woods, to his credit, the founder, you know, leader of the IFES and founder of InterVarsity USA and Canada, he's going to protect his leaders and, and really push back. And and per, part of this is he's Australian, mm-hmm. and he also disagrees a lot with some of the ways that Americans are embracing um, conservative politics, all the way back to the '40s. I mean, I find in Stacy Woods' letters that he's writing against segregation mm-hmm. much earlier than American leaders are writing against segregation uh, of African-Americans. So he has a real sensitivity toward uh, social issues and a real sensitivity to allowing his leaders to to lead. Mm-hmm. So all of this blows up. And you ha- I guess you'll have to read the book to get into Padilla uses his bilingualism to his, yeah. to his advantage. And you know, I find that he's he's being a little bit loose with some of his translations in order to defend himself and what he actually said in Spanish. Uh, and then he writes for Stacey Woods and says, here's what I said. Uh-huh. And he's changing some of it and making it a little bit less controversial for the, for the audience. And the, so the broader point really is that Padilla and Escobar and Costas bristled at the idea that Americans needed to shape their theological destiny. And that you know, someone like Padilla, who has deep theological education as a master's and, you know, and a PhD that rivaled mm-hmm. anyone who's in these conversations with him, he's going to say, I don't need your permission to decide, you know, what Latin American evangelical theology is. And Escobar will say himself, now is the time that we decide mm-hmm. what it means to be evangelical, what it means to be a faithful Christian in our context. And if you're going to try to come in and impose these foreign theological categories on us, then we're going to have an issue with it. Thank you for the answer. And as you mentioned, you'll be able to see some of the real gems, the details um, within the book itself. So I encourage our our listeners uh, to to take a chance to read the book, uh, especially um, as we progress further along in our conversation. Um, My next question would be the following. Um, why was the rebranding and marketing of evangelical social Christianity in Latin America for a wider um, English-speaking audience an important project for both local uh, Latin Americans and missionaries uh, from North America as well? And what did the entangled and codependent yet unequal relations between the locals and foreign missionaries tell us about the politics of transnational Christianity and missionary activity in post-war contexts? Appreciate that because I think that gives us an opportunity to talk about world Christianity as a field a little bit more as well. Yes. Because there's been, you know, this dominant narrative, and helpfully mm-hmm. so, from you know the recently uh, past Andrew Walls and Dana Robert, Lamansana, Brian Stanley, and others, where this generation is really raising for all of our our knowledge that there are more Christians in Africa, Asia, Latin America. That there, there's this new vibrant center perhaps of Christianity in places Mm -hmm. that have been overlooked. 
And that rather than centering the decline of Christianity in places like uh, you know Western Europe and, and even more recently in the United States, that Christianity rather should have its center story in places where it's growing and thriving and creating these really interesting contextual stories in Africa, Asia, Latin America. What I think some of the shortcomings of this is that it might overlook some of the power balance that remains in world Christianity where educational centers and centers of finance and centers of leadership in many global organizations remain in the so-called West. This mm-hmm. has changed tremendously. There's incredibly diverse um, you know, leadership, even in the US. I mean, I think of, uh, of Asian American leadership in the US of many evangelical organizations are now led particularly by Asian Americans, which is, um, you know, I'm thinking of the Lausanne movement and, and uh, which is not necessarily a particularly American organization, the National Association of Evangelicals, InterVarsity mm-hmm. Christian Fellowship. I mean, you can't find more influential evangelical organizations than that. And yet, you know, the, as we think about the, the relationship between American Christianity and, and world Christianity, there still is this, um, this unequal po- power balance uh, mm-hmm. that remains. And so when we talk about, you know, the growing and thriving and, and, and increasingly influential Christianity in the global South, what I don't want to happen is to, to gloss over the, the the issues that remain in terms of the U.S. as a as a geopolitical power and American missionaries in many regions still having this, you know, this power balance. Um, and so I think what's interesting about where this story goes, where Mission Integral, where it's Integral mm-hmm. Mission this, this really unique and contextual development of theology, it becomes adopted by global NGOs like World Vision and Compassion International, where they see this as the ability to, to market sponsoring children, to, to market social action in a way that's palatable for American evangelicals, in a way that's not liberal social gospel, uh, but rather is at the heart of Christian mission. Mm-hmm. So Rene Padilla is, in particular is going to help evangelicals to see that uh, justice is at the center of the gospel message, that it's not a, it's not even an implication of the gospel message, but that it's at, at the center. So eventually, even people like the head of World Vision, Richard Stearns, is going to write a book called The Hole in the Gospel. Mm. And I argue in the book, I mean, this is a direct legacy of people like Padilla who are going to argue it's not just an implication of faithful Christians who now that they're converted are going to do the, these good works, but rather this is a social dimension mm-hmm. of the gospel. Now, because Integral Mission is going to be adopted by global NGOs, in particular with American evangelical bases, it's going to be defanged of its political critique. It's going to be defanged of its critique of American influence abroad in many ways. Um, it's going to be, you know, defanged from their critiques of, of global capitalism and, um, and in, in particular, American missionaries, because that's not a great, that's not a great branding pitch. That's not a great fundraising pitch to say, hey, you've created all these problems in the global south, and and hey, like your government is creating, you know, is perpetuating violence as much as it's, you know, alleviating it, and so that's not necessarily going to get American evangelicals to donate to these things. So it's it's rebranded, I think, in a way. Integral mission becomes the the organizing principle for, and I may be getting ahead of myself in our story here, but over 500 Christian mission and relief organizations are going to use that phrase, integral mission. And that is going to um, both be a success of this story, but Mm -hmm. others, many Latin American evangelicals are going to see it in part as a failure because it's going to lose its teeth. Yeah. Thank you for that answer um, and the detailed insight. Kind of segueing into now chapter six of your book, um, I was very curious to know, you know, in relation to what we've been, what we've been talking about, how the blurred boundaries between evangelical and ecumenical Protestantism in post-war Latin America tell us about the importance of theological collaboration, exchange, and negotiation and making of a transnational social Christianity. So do you mind talking a little more on this issue as well? Yeah, so there's this chapter called Crossing Boundaries, where mm-hmm. I center the relationship, especially between uh, Latin American evangelicals and Jose Miguez Bonino, who's a mm-hmm. who's uh, part of the leading generation of liberation theologians. He's published alongside Gustavo Gutierrez mm-hmm. and Juan Luis Segundo, and and those who would be core liberation theologians. He he's writing, you know, at the time that's really shaping liberation theology. And yet, if you remember, we talked about Protestantism as a religious minority community in Latin America. So 
for especially a theological elite, we might say, mm-hmm. the the differences between denominations in some ways were often less important because there's not many of us. We need to all get along. We need to, you know, cooperate, especially those who are interested in social Christianity. You know, we need to stick together. Uh-huh. And so part of the interesting story here is um, leaders like Padilla Escobar Costa is trying to include people like Jose Miguez Bonino in their gatherings mm-hmm. and fighting American donors, fighting, fighting American missionaries who are saying, you know, don't include a liberation theologian. This isn't something that necessarily we want to fund. Um, or that we want to be part of, or that you want to be part of. And yet, especially Padilla is going to develop this close relationship with Jose Miguez Bonino, sharpening each other. I even argue that um, that Padilla has an influence on how liberation theology is going to think about the kingdom of God, theological mm-hmm. motif, and he's going to sharpen Jose Miguez Bonino in his understanding. And, and together, they're going to also influence others who are in this, this leading generation of liberation theology. So the the boundary lines blurred in the context of Latin America in the development of social Christianity, the same boundaries in the US where mainline and evangelicals have, you know, fought and battled and separated over a you know long period of time, they don't exist in the same way in Latin America. They still exist among many pastors, they still exist, you know, among many seminaries. And yet in surprising cases, we might say, those boundary lines blur and the collaboration mm-hmm. across these boundaries makes for uh for bursting categories for breaking mm-hmm. things out of boxes yeah. um and you know in the, in the pursuit of justice in the pursuit of 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 social action in the pursuit of the kingdom of god these latin american evangelicals are going to see mainline protestants as as sharing in this journey not without critique and so mm-hmm. some of the sharpest critique that they have is for Isol, which we mentioned before, who is, yeah. you know, um, Padilla is going to say that they're putting an ideological straitjacket on the Bible and not reading the Bible in its own context, but rather putting these these political categories on top of it. But mm-hmm. so is Jose Miguez Bonino. He eventually moves further alongside Latin American evangelicals, says that liberation theology has um, has lost its way in some ways and has lost the Christian character of praxis, mm-hmm. um, and so the robust conversation that doesn't allow for simple categories of, you know, these people stay over here and these people Mm -hmm. stay over here, but rather intimate friendships Mm -hmm. uh, in the midst of of this heated and pressure, you know, induced environment that they want to cooperate with those who can, who can contribute to that project. So crossing boundaries of this chapter, they were both also based in Buenos Aires. Their churches Mm -hmm. were pretty close to each other. They would, they would collaborate together. Um, yeah, and I just think their friendship was one that that allowed me to um, to explore the ways in which Misiones and liberation theology mm-hmm. um, collaborated, sharpened each other, and produced new things. Thank you for that insight. Um, now, already we we're already <laughs> segueing into our last chapter, chapter seven, and um, I would love to discuss the following questions uh, we prepared, but. How did Latin American um, evangelical leaders straddle their obligations and ties to local North American and global evangelical efforts, even as they sought to craft a distinctly um, Latin American social Christianity? And kind of uh, a follow-up to that is, what does the appropriation of Latin American theological and political ideas by North American leaders tell us about Latin America's place in the global stage of evangelicalism and uh, social Christianity? I appreciate that because I think one of the things I've, I want to clarify for the for the reader, and I hope that the book does too, mm. is that this is not a case of of a monologue from Latin America to the rest of the world, right? That this is yeah. not a case of, and which can be true, I think, in some world Christianity literature where it's a you know a south to north critique or it's a you know it's a one directional kind of um, kind of move, but that this is truly a global conversation. This is a multi directional conversation where. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I've, I've in my telling have, have highlighted how they critiqued American missionaries and how they critiqued, yeah. you know, the U.S. But also, there were Americans who were very much on board with the project, who were in the region, and 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 British leaders like John Stott and others. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter Savage is another one who was very influential as a British missionary in the region, and who was, you know, every every bit as part of developing this. Andrew Kirk was a British um, leader who was very much part of this development, and so. 
Um, this was a multi-directional conversation. It wasn't one that excluded those based on you know where they are from or their you know their country of origin, but it was more about are you going to allow for this local expression, this local development, this local space? And so that final chapter I think is interesting because I bring together the American evangelical left, you know, some of the the influence that Latin Americans had on someone who's not not really evangelical left anymore, but um, uh, Brian McLaren, who at the mm-hmm. time was very influential in creating the emerging church movement. And I got to interview him about Padilla's influence on his theology. People like Ron Sider, who writes the best-selling Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger and becomes colleagues with Costas and Escobar at Eastern mm-hmm. Baptist Theological Seminary. There's a lot of influence there. Juan, uh, or Juan, John Howard Yoder, the now controversial John Howard Yoder, who is a very influential Anabaptist theologian. Um, is in Latin America in these early years and being shaped shaped while he's writing the politics of Jesus, which is one of his most influential book. Mm-hmm. Um, but we mentioned before, you know, this the way that this these ideas are going to be exported to the U.S. and eventually adopted by global NGOs. It's going to allow it to, you know, the the sharp critique that that American evangelical left have of militarism and American imperialism and you know really a lot of ways that Americans are working abroad both in government and even some of these NGOs, the fact that it's adopted by NGOs um, and, and is, you know, loses some of this political edge, um, I think it's a fascinating end to the story, but mm-hmm. it is part of this continuing conversation for global evangelicals, right? Of yeah. They have very global organizations. They have these diverse communities, the Lausanne movement, again, an incredibly diverse movement. And there remains a robust conversation about all of these issues, you know, not, Integral mission by no means is adopted by everyone, and yet mm-hmm. it becomes part of the official uh, statements of Lausanne in 2010, where they they adopt integral mission as an official statement. Which, if you look back at 1974, would have been shocking that that became the center mm-hmm. uh, for many global evangelicals of how to express their faith. Yeah. So the story, you know, um, moves and and ebbs and flows throughout lots of different political contexts. But I think throughout it, we really get to see this cosmopolitan or this this eclectic and this global character of of global Christianity. And I hope that it shows that, you know, there really is, there's a place for people from everywhere to be part of this conversation. And for those who are Christians to, to, to bring their, their whole self to this conversation. And I think you know, what can happen is that people even in the U.S. or in Great Britain or other places will say, well, now there's no place for me in this. But rather, if we learn from the mistakes of the past and Mm -hmm. people learn from, you know, the ways in which that power has been wielded wrongly and then bring their own, you know, gifts and talents and and contributions to that global global conversation, then we can see, you know, similar contributions and developments come out of a of a multi-directional conversation. It's a harder conversation. Yeah. It's messier. It takes a lot more work. It takes a lot more cultural competency. But the products, hopefully, are, are much more faithful. Certainly for, for Padilla and Escobar, they would say it's much more faithful to to the biblical witness than than previously what would have been there. Thank you for that. And um, in just reading your book, um, I really appreciated how you were able to shine light into these figures that, that we've discussed uh, throughout this interview. Um, and it kind of challenges other scholars of world Christianity, um, those who are interested in studying Christianity in the world, to shine light on, you know, um, uh, figures such as uh, Escobar, figures such as Padilla, um, those that have been working um, that have not been, you know, emphasized enough uh, in their own countries, in their own Christianities. And and you've challenged our listeners and our readers um, to, you know, investigate more on these figures. And, and, and I want to thank you for for an excellent work and kind of in a way summarizing um, uh, the whole book itself, a brief question, um, if you can answer this as well. Um, So how does this post-war brand of social Christianity and integral mission in Latin America fit um, within the wider, ever-growing landscape of evangelicalism in Global South? Yeah, and that's a great opportunity to clarify, you know, this is a a fascinating story in Latin American evangelicalism, but it isn't the majority one, you know, most, I would say most churches in Latin America, most pastors wouldn't explicitly um, embrace something like integral mission. You know, we see yeah. an interesting reality in this uh, Pew Research Project, Religion in Latin America. There's some really interesting 
questions that were asked to Christians in Latin America. And so we see an interesting dichotomy where um, those who are Catholic respond um, much more affirmatively that caring for the poor is at the center of the mission of the church. Mm. But interestingly, Protestants were more likely to say that they did something concretely to care for someone, you know, and their tangible physical needs recently. And so there's a, there's a divide in terms of discourse and Mm -hmm. a divide in terms of action. So, um, you know, I think that sometimes we can, if we stay at the level of conciliar discourse and we look at, you know, integral mission as an intellectual project, we might miss the ways in which many Protestant evangelicals, even though they might not say that this is the center of mission of the church are, are, are acting like it is Mm -hmm. in, in many of these contexts. But most uh, churches and most pastors would be on the kind of right of the spectrum. And especially as we look at some of the influence of Pentecostal and charismatic churches in Latin America, which is really the, the lifeblood of what is happening in Christianity there, mm-hmm. um, that there, there are um, influential strands of conservative politics here when we look at the rise of Bolsonaro in Brazil and other places where um, there is a militant brand of conservative politics that is that comes out of uh, especially Pentecostal Christianity here. And, and the Pentecostalization of Latin American Christianity is a reality across mm-hmm. denominations that, you know, I think it's now a, a majority of Catholics even identify as charismatic Catholics in Latin America. Mm-hmm. So again, when we talk about crossing boundaries, right, we talk about the, the you know, porous nature of some of these theological categories. How does somebody check a box on a survey? How do they live it in their reality, uh, you know, on the ground? Um, but social Christianity certainly is is very influential, especially among a, again, we might say a theological elite or the, the global NGOs. So many of the leaders in World Vision, Compassion, uh, InterVarsity, mm-hmm. all of these really influential groups in Latin America are, um, are close with uh, uh, theological education around integral mission and would subscribe to these things. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, it's it's complex and it's clear in the ways that this influence has taken place. And I think the story in many ways is still playing out. How are we going to see the chips fall mm. in the aftermath of, of Trump's administration? And as so many, uh, you know, in places like the U.S., when so many evangelicals of color will ask, what's my place in, in this church and in this organization, is this, is this something that's worth fighting for? Is it worth mm-hmm. creating something new? And, you know, many of these tensions are uh, are not new, but are resurfacing in powerful and uh, and hurtful ways. Mm. That many are asking these critical questions again. I think we're at a, a crossroads of of a generation that may embrace some of these questions of social Christianity, mm. uh, of perhaps a backlash against similar things. And where are these coalitions and organizations? And leaders going to fall in terms of who they're cooperating with and what they think about these things? I think we're we're in a moment where those things are still, um, you know, falling to the to the ground in terms of where are they going to, um, where are they going to eventually set and land, and and new coalitions and organizations I think are going to be produced as a as a product. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Kirkpatrick. Thank you for your time today to discuss your book. And I think um, today's conversation really helps our listeners and our future readers as well to kind of ponder about our social context right now, our political climate, our social climate as well. And it will give us some challenges to think about where we are located and the the times we are living in at at this moment as well, uh, especially in the U.S. context as well. But um, as we end today's interview, there is one final question that I would like to ask all my guests, and that is, do you mind sharing with us about your current and future projects and what you hope to work on in the near future? Well, thanks so much, Gunho, and I want to say thank you so much for having me before I answer that question. And, um, you know, also to Irene for her work behind the scenes. Real pleasure to, to join you in conversation about the book. Um, so you mentioned that I'm just finishing up an edited volume with Jason Bruner, who was just on this podcast recently, yeah. and he's a good friend of mine. Uh, it's called Global Visions of Violence, and it's coming out with Rutgers University Press. Just an all-star group of diverse mm-hmm. scholars uh, across multiple fields we're exploring how violence fits into this story of global Christianity. Um, and so keep an eye out for that. I'm also finishing up a book uh, with Oxford University Press that you mentioned, Blood and Borders. Right now, the subtitle is uh, Violence and the Origins of the Global War on Christians. And I'm exploring um, 
how violence uh, shaped both Latin American and U.S. Christianity, mm-hmm. how this idea of, um, you know, a global war on Christians developed through things like uh, missionary prayer letters and the ways that Latin America is presented in mm-hmm. U.S. evangelicalism. Uh, those sounds like wonderful and great projects, and I look forward to reading more of your works. And once again, thank you, Dr. Kirkpatrick, for being on today's podcast. Thank you again for having me. A real pleasure. And thank you, everyone, so much for listening to today's episode in which we explored a gospel for the poor, global social Christianity, and the Latin American evangelical left, written by David Kirkpatrick and published by University of Pennsylvania Press in 2019. This is your host, Pyongho Choi, and stay tuned for the next episode on new books on world Christianity.